Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for worship. We thank you for the beautiful gift of music that has been intertwined with your people and with your church for thousands of years, and we thank you uh, that that is still a blessing to us today. Lord, I pray um, wherever we're at, again, that you would work in our hearts today. Grow us closer to you um, and help us to experience the joy um, that music and worship uh, can bring to our lives, to anybody's life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so yes, the theme today is walking with God in worship, specifically the music. And I know what you might be thinking, why is the young guy who likes guitars giving this sermon? Um, It's okay. It'll be okay. Um, But first, I I want us to uh, close our eyes. So everybody's going to close your eyes. This is not a license to sleep. I want you to reflect on your life a little bit. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye an experience with music, music that really impacted you or resonated with you. Maybe that's music from church, if you grew up in a church. Maybe that's music from a concert, whether an orchestra concert or a rock concert. Music that really spoke to your soul. What has that music that you're thinking about added to your life, to who you are? My guess is that whether you're a musician or not, whether you're somebody who's all into music or just uses it on the side or on the radio, that there's some experience in your past that has spoken to you, that has enriched your life, that has made your life better. I think you can open your eyes now. Don't want it to be too long. But music is an incredibly important gift from God. I think when we sing or engage in music or or learn an instrument, uh, when we use parts, we use parts of our brains that aren't used for other things, right? And that's important. I have a friend who did a lot of hospice work. He was a musician, and he was a music therapy major at Wartburg College. So part of his uh, work was to go around to hospice houses or into people's homes and take his guitar along with him and just try to enrich their lives with music. And he noted, and I've read other studies on this too, that particularly with Alzheimer's patients who had very little memory of even who they were, could often still sing along word for word, note for note with an old hymn or an old tune. Um, kind, of, kind of the same thing has happened in my own experience of pastoral care with, with songs, but also with things like the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't matter how far somebody's mind seems to have deteriorated, that there's parts of our lives, parts of our faith that stick. So God, I, th- I believe God has hardwired into us this ability to be blessed by music, by song, by rhythms and tunes. Whether you consider yourself a, a good musician or somebody with a good, who can carry a tune or not, I think that's true for all of us. And I think our culture recognizes this too, for better or for worse. See, movie soundtracks can make or break a movie, right? A couple that came to my mind, uh, Braveheart. If you've seen Braveheart, beautiful Celtic music soundtrack. It really does make the movie. I've listened to that soundtrack hundreds of times probably. Or Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, the epic trilogy. The soundtrack behind that movie is incredible. Even something more modern like the Titanic. Uh, We can all probably sing My Heart Will Go On in, in our heads right now. But the soundtrack added a lot to the experience. It helps to shape that experience. Um, our church, churches are the same way. The music that we use shapes our experience. But our culture also knows that that can be used in a bad way, too. There's music that we would not sing in church. This is true. Um, not because of the notes in and of itself, but because of the message that is along with that music. Um, so in my own experience, uh, music, music has been a large part of my life. Anybody with 
you know, a dozen more instruments at home other than what I brought. That's probably true. And it's part of my identity, but it doesn't define who I am. Now, Jesus does that in the Gospels. He defines who I am. But I grew up in a musical home. Uh, my mom played bassoon, and then she got arthritis. She taught herself a whole bunch of brass instruments and played handbells in church and sang in the choir. My dad was a piano player. He played for uh, the little kids' Sunday school at our church for 17 years growing up, along with teaching kindergarten Sunday school, which still baffles me. And uh, my brother uh, played clarinet all throughout. He was an all-state musician um, on clarinet. My sister picked up uh, viola, I believe it was, after years of playing the flute, and she ended up making all-state on viola. Um, I'd used my voice to go to all-state, but I also played trumpet and started playing guitar in high school. So I grew up in a musical home, and I grew up in a traditional Lutheran church, and it was mainly an organ. If you've been to Nazareth Lutheran Church in Cedar Falls, they've got an organ. It is a big organ. It is a beautiful instrument. But then I also went to places like camp, and I experienced different types of music, which also spoke to me. I went to music festivals where it was pretty modern music, but the gospel was very clear. It was very beautifully presented through different instruments, through different styles of music. And it has all been important to me. Every single, pieces of the, every single piece of those experiences has helped to shape who I am. Even the stuff that I don't like, in some ways, has shaped who I am. The styles that I don't like. I think when we talk about music worship uh, in the church, we, we have a tendency to go towards legalism. And there's two different ditches that I think we can fall into here. And I don't think either side is healthy. So when I use that analogy, I mean, if you're driving down a gravel road out in the country and it's snowy, you don't want to be in either ditch, right? Like there's a good middle place to be going. You don't want to get too close to one side or the other. So there's two ditches, I think, that we, we, tend, to, we tend to see in the church. Not just this church, but all over the place. Uh, one of those ditches is that we get comfortable with what we're used to and familiar with, which are good things, but then it, it leads us to reject or put off other things that are new or things that require change. Um, there's a, a movie that I watched back in uh, middle school, probably twice a year for three years. It was called Why Man Creates. It was this really cheap, low-budget film made by artists, and it had a bunch of different sketches in it that was supposed to get you to think creatively or, or to really examine why we as humans have the tendency to do something new or innovative or create. And there's this one little sketch. It's really short. It has two snails talking to one another, just really cheap cartoon animation. And one snail turns to the other, and he goes... Hey, Larry, did you ever realize that radical ideas which threaten institutions then in turn become institutions and reject radical ideas which threaten institutions? <laughs> and the other snail goes, hmm, I think you're onto something. I'll say it slower for you. Do, do you ever realize that radical ideas which threaten an institution then in turn become an institution in and of themselves and start to reject radical ideas which threaten institutions? They were snails for a reason. It's a very slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. So that's one of the ditches we can be in. We could be so, so in love with what we're comfortable with that we're not willing to see other things as valid. I don't think we do that consciously. I think that's just one of those ditches we tend to end up in. The other thing that, that we often see in our culture is abundant and rapid change. And we can change so often that we never develop a rhythm or a depth that we can build upon. If you sing six new hymns every week for a whole year, you don't get really familiarized with the music. You don't get, get, it, get it really in depth. If you read a, a scripture passage once and put it down and don't come back for three or four years, you don't get a depth. 
So that's what I mean by that. If we're always changing our time together, we also don't get to form a rhythm and an identity. So that's the other ditch. Uh, I know a pastor up in the Twin Cities, he said, if, if we stop changing stuff at our church, uh, then people start to get worried because they're always trying to figure out the culture that they live in and how to reach that culture. So it's always tweaking and changing. What doesn't change there is the gospel proclamation. So there is a foundation that you can have that should be constant throughout any stylistic changes. But the goal here is to do both of these things well, to have meaningful change, to freshen things up and inspire us, to invite us to grow in depth and experience, while also having a rhythm in which our local congregation can build a camaraderie and an identity. Another argument that comes into music is this sacred versus secular argument. Um, And this one, I used to think in this way too. I grew up in a church family, and the music in our house was sacred music. Most of the music that we sang or we even played in band or sang in the choirs in high school was sacred music. It was music written by and for the church. But but we tend to classify instruments and and music that way. So I'm going to come over here to the piano. All right, so... Middle C, right? Middle C. What is sacred or secular about this note? Okay, so I could be like, uh, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All right, so I use that note in a sacred way. I use it as a a praise, as a prayer to glorify God. Or I could use it, This is boring. I want to go watch the NFL pregame show for the NFC championship game. (laughs) And so I've, I've used the same note for a different purpose, right? Or what makes the organ a sacred music or sacred instrument? What makes a guitar sacred or secular? What makes the electric guitar hidden over in the corner sacred or secular? Martin Luther is even rumored to have called the organ a tool of Baal. Um, So we all have our preferences. And and I told Emily I was going to say that ahead of time so she wasn't taken back. I don't believe that. All right. But my point in all this is to say that no melody or note in and of itself is sacred or secular. Rather, it is how we use these things to glorify God, or not. That means that we have the freedom as Christians in worship to use any music or instrument in any way that glorifies God. Luther himself believed that anything that was not condemned by Scripture was a freedom when it came to worship, provided that it was true to God's word and glorifying to God. So that's the point of this. The sacred versus secular is all how we approach it. It's all how we use the tools and the breath that God has given us. Are we going to live a sacred life or a secular life? If, if, if the psalmist wants everything that has breath to praise the Lord, it's also implying that with every breath we are praising the Lord. So as we do our own self-examination as Christians and as a manual, we need to be mindful of these, these pitfalls to fall into. God has gifted us with infinite musical arrangements and instruments, and we can use every single one of them to glorify God in our worship together as a church. So I was going to go more in depth here, so this is going to be a very brief history of church music. Uh, So roughly in 500-year intervals since Jesus came and walked on the earth, there have been sort of seismic shifts in how churches use music. A lot of those have gone hand-in-hand with the culture that the church was dominant in at the time. So the early church was largely underground, right? They met in people's homes. Uh, They had symbols on their doors so that you knew where to meet, things like that. We don't know a lot except that they did worship together. We see that clearly in the book of Acts. Singing songs, singing hymns, speaking the psalms, praying for one another, eating together. That was worship. But that's pretty much the snapshot we have. We don't have a ton of other writings uh, because I don't think they had a lot of formal gatherings like what we know as church today. 
Then moving into the next era when Christianity is legalized, we get the invention of these big cathedrals with great acoustics where one or two people up front would lead all of the music. We have things like Gregorian chanting or polyphonic chanting where different melodies intertwine. And then as we moved into the Middle Ages, we see more composers popping up. We see more modern instruments like strings and orchestral instruments, and we see the organ coming. And then finally, what is the era we are in today? What is it characterized by? Electricity. Not an instrument, but a way of life that is just completely integral to our culture. Now a single voice, a single guitar, a single electric organ like our own can fill an entire stadium. It doesn't take a large choir to fill a room. It doesn't take a complete orchestra or ensemble to fill a room. Just one little thing with electricity and amplification can do it. Our own worship here obviously relies heavily on electricity. Uh, you can hear me now because of electricity. I also am loud. Uh, but that's a, different, that's a different point, different sermon. All of these transformations in church history have had their challenges. All of these transformations receive pushback in some way, shape, or form. Even electricity in churches received pushback. All of them are also glorifying to God if they're used in the spirit of worship and if they're used appropriately. And there's no reason why we or any church today cannot draw from different expressions throughout our history and our faith and modern expressions as well to glorify God together. We get a taste of worship music in Scripture. And in Psalm 150, I'm going to invite you now, uh, as Pastor Kurt and I have talked about, we're going to invite you to read the Word for yourselves and dig into the Scriptures with us. So if you have a Bible, let's turn to Psalm 150. Otherwise, pull out a pew Bible in front of you, and you can share with the person next to you. And for most of you, it should be on page 983 if you're using the Pew, the pew Bible. We're going to read Psalm 150. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So we have a variety of worship instruments, but the purpose of each one is what? To praise the Lord. Absolutely. In fact, that is our purpose too, right? Verse 6, if we are reading this and can think we have breath, which means we too are to praise the Lord. Everything with breath, whether you're holding an instrument or not, whether you're speaking or not, singing or not, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Every moment of every day we have breath, so we can choose to use any moment of any day to praise the Lord or to not. And then moving to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, that's going to be on page 1,652, if you are following along in the Pew Bibles. Jesus is having this really fascinating conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And you can follow along as well as I read this one. John chapter 4, 21 through 24, page 1,652. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is giving a contrast to the accepted way of worship that has been passed down through the generations of the Jewish faith. And he's saying that there is a time coming when it's going to be boiled down to much, a much different way of thinking about worship. It's not going to be about going to the mountain. It's going to be worship in spirit and in truth. I don't think we can let ourselves fall into the same understanding that the woman of the well had about worship. Sometimes we view our church buildings as the place where we worship. That we have to somehow worship at a certain time or place that is required to look a certain way, maybe like the era before us or the area we grew up in. But the point of this is, Jesus is talking before his death and resurrection. After that, we are now filled as his people with the Holy Spirit. The time has come. The time is now here for you and for me. The time Jesus is pointing to is the time that we live in as the Christian church. The time has come where our worship does not have to be at a certain place at a certain time, although this place is part of our worship, and that's a good and valuable thing. The time has come where our worship does not have to be legally defined style, although many styles play a role and add richness to our worship as a church. And the time has come when Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has filled us with the capacity to worship anywhere, in any place, in any God-glorifying way, with every breath that we have. Let everyone that has breath praise the Lord. And then our final scripture from Revelation 19, and I included this because worship isn't just about what we do in this little snapshot of time. So Revelations 19, 6 through 9, if you're in your pew Bible, that's going to be page 1,935, and you're welcome to follow along with me. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. You see, the worship that we get to take part of in our lives here on earth is a foretaste of eternity. It is a foretaste of eternal life. Scriptures tell us that we, we, we can understand that the angels right now are worshiping in God's presence. As are we. As are millions of other Christians around the globe. So walking with God in worship when it comes to music, it's not just about our actions. It's not about our comfort. It's not about finding relevance in a changing world, although these things are important. Worship, more than anything else, is a foretaste of eternity. We, we don't have to wait till we die and receive eternal life to worship in the way we get to worship when we have eternal life. We get pictures of that worship in the scriptures. We get pictures of it throughout the history of the Christian church, that God moves in incredible, meaningful, spirit-filled, blessed ways when we gather and worship together. So when we passionately join in a hymn or in any other style of worship, we participate in the kingdom of God today. We participate in eternity. When we leave our comfort zone in an effort to find common ground with a different culture, with a different age group, we grow our own understanding of worship. We experience a foretaste of eternity. I saw, listened to a sermon once at a passion conference where, where the preacher was playing different snippets of music from different 
Christian cultures all over the world. And there is a wide variety out there. And every tongue, tribe, and nation is going to be represented at eternity. We have just a tiny little slice of that pie. So I encourage you to worship God with every breath, whether you are doing it with music or not. My prayer for us in Emmanuel is that we would begin to view our worship times together as what God intends, a foretaste of eternity. Like, this is, this is a big celebration. In spirit and in truth, because we are in the time Jesus was talking about, where every breath is a breath that praises the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you bless us abundantly again and again and again with the gifts that you give us and with this gift of music. Lord, I pray that we would hold that well, that we would display that well. I pray that our underlying foundations, our unity, would be in Christ and in Christ alone, and that our preferences and worship would be celebrated. I pray that we would find the riches that you intend us to find in the musical notes and melodies and harmonies, the chords, the rhythms, the choirs, the instruments, all of these things that you have given us and blessed us with. And Lord, may every, everything, may everyone who has breath praise the Lord in all that we say, in all that we do, every moment of our lives, in Jesus' name, amen.